You're listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd, a podcast that explores stories inspired by the collections of the Lloyd Library and Museum, located in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. Lloyd Library has been celebrating the avian world with On the Wing, a chapter on birds. Birds are here for everyone to enjoy, or at least we like to think so. But outdoor spaces where we enjoy bird watching aren't necessarily accessible and equitable for all. We're talking today with Taiki James, who's co-founder and co-chair of Amplify the Future. He's also co-founder of Black Birders Week and is currently the National Audubon Society's Government Affairs Coordinator in Washington, D.C. Taiki is encouraging everyone to get out and enjoy birds, and he's expanding conversations in the birding community. Hi, Taiki. Welcome to Between the Leaves. So spring migration is going on right now, and that's definitely a birder's favorite time of year. I know you've been out birding. Uh, What are you seeing in D.C. right now? I was actually birding on the mall on Sunday, and I got to see my first black and white warbler in D.C. of the year. I was pretty excited about that. And I also got to bird a little bit in Harper's Ferry um, a little bit last week. And it was I was I was actually at a rookery uh, around a bunch of nesting herons, and it's just so prehistoric. <laughs> it seems you know the way they sound, and and but then at the same time they're so graceful. You know I notice when they land, they always land against the wind. So you know it's like spring migration. I think about it in terms of you can see a lot of birds that are. Visiting, you know, coming from Bogota, Colombia, taking a stop in the District of Columbia before going to British Columbia. You can see those birds, but also you get to see new bird behaviors for birds that you may see year-round because you'll see a lot more uh, breeding and nesting behaviors and, you know, different birds do it differently, like the belted kingfisher. The male actually makes the nest and digs a burrow near a river. Uh, They're burrowing nesters. And the female goes out and gets the food and things like that. Or you'll see that birds are a lot more vocal because they're trying to defend territory, you know, and they're trying to get attention. So it's definitely an exciting time for a lot of those uh, reasons and features. So what brought you to birding? Uh, Birding for me started as a job. I was in uh, West Philadelphia at the Cobbs Creek Community Environmental Education Center. And there, uh, part of that first lesson was a focus on racial justice and uh, park benefits, like environmental benefits. And the way that that took form was when I would knock on my neighbor's doors asking to go out to the park with me, it was uh, humbling to be like, wait a minute, I have to first acknowledge the harm that the city has put on this community in a lot of different ways through uh, specifically the move bombing that took place about 36, 37 years ago, the um, legacy of divestment from the city and funding the parks around that community, um, and looking at 
simple features like street lights, trash cans, and park benches as a way to see, okay, well, yeah, I wouldn't want to go to this park either. You know, if the grass is unkept, I wouldn't want to go there either. That was like the first humbling realization that when we're talking about the environment, we're, we're always talking about people's relationship to it. And if we just think that we're looking at the bird and appreciating the bird without realizing that we're appreciating not just the bird in the tree, but the tree in the habitat, the habitat in the park, the park that's next to the neighborhood, if we don't see those connections, then, you know, we're not really birding. And that was kind of like my first lesson that followed me into where I'm at now with the National Audubon Society, where I get to organize bird walks with members of Congress and congressional staff. So it's all about those connections. And um, Amplify the Future is, I know, concerned with equity in conservation and birding. So you're working to bring opportunities to people who have historically been excluded from those things. So you were just talking a little bit about that. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. So Amplify the Future has come from the you know great support of the birding community and a lot of the people that I met along the way in this great journey. And the premise, like part of what we came together around was initially an independent scholarship program called Birders Fund, uh, where we uh, provided $5,000 scholarships to Black and Latinx birders who are studying science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And from that birders fund, we created Amplify the Future that now includes the Freedom Birders Project and Birders Fund as key programs. And, And when we came together, what we worked on is envisioning a world where higher education is free, careers in conservation are accessible, and achieving justice in our communities is possible through the joy of birding. Or, you know, the general outdoors. I'm kind of biased. I like birding a lot. I know you mentioned freedom birders. Can we talk about how that project got started and what what are the goals of that project? I think that kind of dovetails with what you were just talking about. Indeed. So the uh, Freedom Birders Project started after Black Birders Week, and specifically after part of a conversation that we had with uh, Christian Cooper on Facebook Live, where he brought up no-go zones. He talked about places he didn't want to go because he didn't feel safe. And a lot of the folks, including myself on the panel, reflected a lot of those places were in the South. Now, I got an email later after that from my new best friend now, uh, Jeffrey Train, who kind of brought up an interesting point that, you know, I reflected on as well, that if we don't include the South when we're thinking about places we want to go or places that we're connected to, then we're also losing a connection to a rich amount of Black history and that if we only define the Black experience in reference to looking at the South, we know that we're being a little biased. You know, we're folks from the North. We're, you know, I've lived most of my life in the North. And it was that realization of, okay, well, let's think about what inspired folks to move and to, to, to organize South. He brought up the Freedom Riders. And that, that our name is directly inspired from that cause and that purpose to get folks on a bus, you know, folks that um, haven't 
seen an integrated bus back in 1961, black folks and white folks getting on a bus organized by the Congress for Racial Equity and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, getting on that bus and deliberately breaking the law to change the law. And to know that that was their purpose and that was their um, intended outcome is really inspirational. Because I, I think that while we do not have the same call to action as, as they did in the 60s, I think that there is a similar need for solidarity for people to come together and get on that proverbial bus to make that difference. And, and birding, I think, is a really special way to build that common ground. And so the Freedom Birders' goals, one, we want to empower educators. And by empowering educators, we want to uh, share and develop this educational resource that's basically a virtual self-guided facilitation kit called a Freedom Birdhouse, where you can click on so many things, and it is basically a more creative form of a list of URLs and a list of website links. Uh, It's meant for the entire family to interact with. We've already done seven different presentations around the country, and we talk to folks that are interested in history, natural history, to connect these points of, well, if we think about how the Freedom Riders went south to... Uh, organize and help achieve liberation. Let's think about how there are also birds that move south because they're looking for better shelter, better health conditions so that they can continue their life cycle. And then we can reverse that in thought. We can think about the Underground Railroad that went from south to north to Canada, not just to Philadelphia and the Freedoms Bureau or or not just across the Mason-Dixon line, but some of these folks went all the way up to Canada and connecting the stories of the movement of people, the observation of wildlife and the story of land will inspire birders. And so we're also looking for opportunities in creating content that will inspire birders and outdoor enthusiasts alike that are that go to these weird places, that go to these new places, that go to these historic places in their recreation or in their profession. That's just where they are. And it would just be so much more meaningful if we added the consciousness of, let's think about what's been here. Let's think about the answer to the question, how did we get here? How did that get here? And then our last goal is to train organizers. We want to develop a Freedom Birders Organizing Academy where so many folks have asked, what can I do to help? And I've tried to answer that question so many times. And, and, And one of the answers that I provide in that is organize. And so training organizers, I think, is the immediate help to folks who want to make a difference in their community and folks who are birders and outdoor enthusiasts, especially a lot of the folks that I've met over the last two years after Black Birders Week, I think that this will be a very useful tool um, and a very useful skill that can catalyze that needed change on a community level. So we can just talk about these things with people when we're out birding together. Is that part of the idea? Yeah. I mean, everyone loves interesting facts about birds. You know, everybody loves the different connections and relationships and perspectives you can have about a particular species or a story about the life cycle of a bird. And one of the things that the Freedom Birders group we work with, a Harriet Tubman birding uh, historic tour company, Uh, they're a partnership of a private birding company and the Harriet Tubman 
Museum in Cambridge, Maryland, where she grew up, where they go out to where she was born and, and, and contextualize not just the current state of the habitat and how climate change is affecting that and how sea level rise is erasing the history of Harriet Tubman in some ways, but they also talk about how when Harriet Tubman was this young, think about like how she had to walk through these fields and, and, you know, we have nice shoes on today. She didn't have those same shoes. You know, it just, it can add an extra appreciation for this was an historic spot where Harriet Tubman started connecting with her spirituality and started connecting with how she can communicate with animals and how she would use bird calls and understand bird calls as ways of calling people so that they knew when it was their time to go, so that they knew it was time to hide when they were making their way up the Underground Railroad. So this is really a way to connect our current realities with history, these stories uh, that are so important in our history. And there are so many of them, right? There's just so, so many. And there are some that I'm looking forward to unveiling and discovering in Cincinnati, or at least virtually in Cincinnati. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Uh, I understand you're creating a Freedom Bird House for Cincinnati. What's going to be in Cincinnati's Freedom Bird House? And I, and I will say now, it is very much still in development. So if anything dramatically changes, it's because we keep learning stuff. So part of what we're going to talk about is the inspiration of the project and inspiration of the Freedom Birders, the Freedom Riders, because there's actually Freedom Riders still alive today, folks that live in Cincinnati, folks that came from Ohio and a lot of the northern states before they met in D.C. and then took the bus down south. Yeah, I have a friend who was a freedom rider that lives here in Cincinnati. And, of course, we have the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center as well. There's a huge history to talk about free black people in Cincinnati, in, in Ohio. We're also going to talk about the design of the city and the story of the land of the city. And, and one of the things I know I will specifically highlight is the river, is the Ohio River. And how, yes, it's called the Ohio River, but Kentucky, the state just adjacent to Cincinnati, owns all of the water up to the shore. So if you're in the water, you're in Kentucky. And that's a distinction that was made when Kentucky was established. It was established as a part, it used to be part of Virginia, and then it became Kentucky. And so why is that important? Because this is around the same time of the Fugitive Slave Act where the Fugitive Slave Act, later creating the police force that we have today, justified and determined, well, these are the boundaries of slave states, or at least capturing fugitive slaves. Our Freedom Birdhouse that we're forming, we're going to cover that idea of city design and what we can learn from the design of the city and the story of land. We're also going to talk about important bird history. There's some fascinating bird history specifically in Cincinnati for some reason. <laughs> I don't know how or why, but like there's just some really interesting facts. The passenger pigeon, I believe the last passenger pigeon, Martha. 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 She's there. Well, she's there. <laughs> you know what I mean. She was here. <laughs> Yeah, so tell us about that acronym uh, for BIRD. What is that? Oh, yes. It's what Freedom Birders do. Freedom Birders BIRD, B-I-R-D. B means beginner-minded. I think it's a helpful term to keep 
in a lot of what you're doing, even when you're not birding. You notice that there's just when you walk around with the empty cup, you're 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 more willing to accept and you're more willing to uh, appreciate the diversity of perspectives that can come in the world especially when you're birding obviously because when you're birding no one it is very rare that someone will have the same exact perspective as you like when you're looking at a bird you're a little taller than this person so your angle is just different you're seeing a bird from this side of the tree not that side of the tree your perspective is different and that person isn't wrong you know like their perspective is just different and operating with a beginner mindset just helps you navigate these new and interesting ideas that we talk about when we're doing the Freedom Bird House and when we talk about what it means to be a freedom birder. So, beginner-minded, B. I means inclusive. And part of being inclusive is that you're considering where uh, people can have multiple worlds, contain multiple worlds, have multiple identities. Like, it is not just including black folks and white folks. It's about black women and trans men and figuring out that it is our efforts of solidarity that will achieve the progress and have the effect of collective liberation. So it is us standing together and being inclusive on the intersections of different identities. That's also very important that we're also seeing that when you're birding, you're not just looking at a, a an egret. It's not just an egret. You know, it could be a snowy egret, you know, and 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 then understanding that that snowy egret is a female and then understanding that that snowy egret was carrying nesting material. You know, like there's a lot that you can include and intersect in the identity of that single bird. And I kind of relate that to the idea that there are multiple identities that intersect when you're talking about an individual. And it's important to honor that and appreciate that and recognize that. So recognize is R, actually. So and, and that recognition can take the form of recognizing the land that you occupy. So I'm based out of Washington, D.C. That's the traditional lands of the Nakachunk peoples. And I think that's an important thing to uh, normalize, because when we think about what it takes to decolonize society, so that's taking this idea of what has been normalized, you know, in that uh, folks came to the new world, yada, 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 and then we're here. Well, I don't want to yada, yada, yada over that. So I'm going to make sure I recognize the land of whose peoples. And, and, a lot, and a lot of these peoples are still alive, too. So you're not just saying, oh, here's some people that lived here one time ago. No, I'm also giving name to the fact that while we may call this the District of Columbia today, this was this is occupied land, you know, like the the idea of land ownership is something that's very new here and um, has created a lot of issues. Anyway, the recognition of that doesn't necessarily have to take you to despair, but it should give you an opportunity to reflect on that question. How did we get here? Because part of what you realize when you are looking at a rare bird, for example, is that you're answering that question. How did this get here? And whether or not you know the answer to that, you're fascinated by the reflection of this bird being here at the same time you're here. And you know that it's special because it's not supposed to be here or because it only comes here very rarely or whatever that case is, you recognize that. And that's part of what you understand in the story of your birding experience, a story of land. And then D, deliberate. So B-I-R-D, beginner-minded, inclusive, reflective, recognizing and deliberate. Deliberate is so important. I still answer the questions that people have about what can I do to help, 
And it seems that even if I provide some of those answers, the best advice I can give is to give yourself permission and to act deliberately, act with intention when you have your values. If these are your values, normalize how you act on those values. Be deliberate about it. So freedom birders bird. Okay, great. Thanks for explaining that for us. So tell us a little bit more about Blackbirders Week. You co-founded that. How did that get started and what are its goals? In 2020, a group of mostly black women who are birders, scientists, and environmental leaders organized Blackbirders Week after a story of a racist altercation in Central Park, New York City, became national news, overlapping with the stories of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and George Floyd and and their passing. So we also, I want to say that we talked about their lives, not just their passings. Um, Black Birders Week, in in, in short, is a week-long series of online events from the last Sunday in May to the first Saturday in June that amplifies and celebrates the stories of Black Birders in turn, demonstrating that the Black experience is diverse, as it includes joy, pride, resistance, strength, and style. And I hope Cincinnati celebrates Black Birders Week, too. You know, I think that there are Black people who bird in Cincinnati. I hope that they organize their own events, but still pay attention to the uh, national online effort. I know that I'll be trying to organize some events in D.C. Well, hopefully you can come to Cincinnati and, and bird here at some point. Big goal. I mean, all everything I'm learning about Cincinnati, the first thing that I felt is, oh, I have to bird here. I, I, I must. I mean, I'll be close, though. I'll be uh, in Toledo or in the Toledo area because I'll be speaking at the biggest week in American birding. And I'm really excited about that. That is a big event here in Ohio and a very <laughs> exciting one for birders, I know. Yeah, I've, I've been up to it and uh, the warblers are just dripping from the trees. That's what I hear and it will be my first time. So one thing about Cincinnati history uh, that ties into this um, is about John James Audubon. He spent some time in Cincinnati early in his career, and I think that's something that Cincinnatians have characteristically appreciated, I guess. But, you know, most people know the name Audubon. Of course, the National Audubon Society is named in his honor. His Birds of America book was very important um, in documenting bird life. But you'd like us to rethink all of this recognition for Audubon. Can you tell us about that? It's not necessarily that I want to rethink the recognition of Audubon. I just want to provide a more full picture of who he was. And I think that it's important that we look at evidence of of a lot of things that tell us he owned people, he enslaved people. And part of what made him such a great, capable artist and birder, if we want to call it that, is that he had free labor. And he didn't talk about it too much. And where he did, it was, as you would assume, pretty disparaging. And as I am someone who's employed at the National Audubon Society, and somebody who is also the president of his local chapter in D.C., I make it very clear, I do not like my name next to the name of someone who enslaved people. If John James Audubon was alive today, he'd be 237 years old. But also, he would not be a friend of mine. (laughs) He and I would not see eye to eye. 
And I think that that's what we have to think about when we're like, well, who's inspiring the conservation movement? Where does this inspiration come from, you know? And when we think about that question of how did we get here, what have we normalized? We haven't normalized great stuff, you know, honestly. We've, we've, we've tolerated bad things, and we, and we think that it's okay to, well, yes, he may have owned slaves, but no, I think we can make a line on, yeah, if you own slave, that's pretty bad. I'm, I'm looking at you too, uh, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, uh, you know, what is it, the first 13 presidents, uh, and, and hundreds of members of Congress who've, who have also owned people, who have enslaved people. I'm not saying that it is a direct relationship one-to-one, but if we are celebrating John James Audubon, then we're also celebrating the slavery that it took for John James Audubon to become John James Audubon. So I just feel like we can't ignore that fact. And so over-glorifying over that or, or whitewashing it is doing a disservice, not just to the birding community, but to natural history. And honorific names for birds, I know uh, that's another issue that comes up. Tell us about the movement to change some of our well-known bird names and how that fits into this conversation. When I'm birding with folks, a lot of the folks I bird with, uh, they're doing it for the first time. And so they're just hearing names, and, you know, these names don't really mean Harris Hawk. That doesn't mean McCown's Longspur. You know, these, it's just, oh, that's just what it's called, you know, and it's just like totally acceptable. But they would be like, why is it called that if we could just call it a thick-built long spur? Because <laughs> it looks like other long spurs. Whatever a long spur is, I'm not sure. But it's just a, you know, it's a unique term for a bird. Why not call it something that's a little more descriptive and helpful? And when we also see in that larger effort of decolonizing, we're advancing and we're uplifting voices of indigenous people. We can look at indigenous names for birds. All of these names were very descriptive of either how the bird looked, how the bird sound, what they saw the bird doing. And you're just like, well, that makes sense. You know, why can't, why, why not do it that way? Well, part of the reason is because, I mean, a lot of these folks have passed, but it was a great idea then to be like, well, I discovered this bird. I'm the first person to see it, so let's call it after me. Or if not me, my wife. She loves this bird. And it's just like, well, that doesn't sound terrible, I guess, in the moment. <laughs> but when you do it in the context of it's a bunch of old white men naming all of these birds and then naming these birds after themselves, it makes it look like birding and then thus the joy of birds is only a reflection of white men. And that's just not the case. Birding is for everyone. The joy for birds can exist in so many different ways. We can't let it just be defined by one type of people. And so when we're thinking about bird names for birds, not only are we talking about uh, decolonizing birding, we're also talking about what it takes to make birding more accessible and more reflective of the folks who should enjoy it. So your approach to these issues and the environment in general is weaving together all of this history, history of indigenous people, of slavery, of the civil rights movement. Why is all of this so important right now and for people to con make those connections and for us in the future? It's so important in some ways because I have found birding as an avenue to build trust, power, and coalition. And doing that is essential to making meaningful differences in people's lives, if that's what you want to do. 
But even if you want to make a meaningful difference in your life, I think it can happen through the joy of birds. And I just want to share that. And I think that that's the definition of a birder. So if there are more birders, more folks who are just sharing their joy of birds, more folks that are building trust with one another, more folks that are building power with one another, I think that that's going to make a meaningful difference in a lot of people's lives. So in some respect, I just want to model what I've been taught in birding. And, you know, I want to hope that that inspires other people to do that along with me and and also have some fun. I mean, I have everybody I've met has a story about a bird. I've never met anyone who doesn't. And because everybody has all these special stories about birds, I just feel like if I can encourage more people to share those stories, connect those stories to history, connect those stories to the movement of people and 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 the story of land, then I think that we can do something really special, no matter what the movement is, no matter what the call to action is. I think that there's something really special that can happen when we build common ground with birds. You know, who's to say that we get on another proverbial bus to break the law, to change the law, you know, especially there are some laws that need some changing. And we'll have to talk about that in another conversation, because I think we're out of time. But I think that's a great comment to end on. And it's just been a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Between the Leaves. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to Cincinnati. Our guest today has been environmental educator and birder, Tyke James. Thanks for listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd, a podcast of the Lloyd Library and Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio. Produced by Meg Hanrahan. Audio editing, mixing, and original music by Michael G. Ronstadt. Want to learn more about the Lloyd and its collections? You can visit online anytime at lloydlibrary.org.